withstand those storms. Amen? So today we're going to begin, as we always do, with a verse of confession. We're going to look at Psalm 130, verses 1 through 4, and we'll spend a few moments in silent prayer asking God to forgive our sins, prepare our hearts for worship, and that we might be ready to hear and meet with him as he attends to us. So Psalm 130, verses 1 through 4 say this, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Let's pray. Lord, we as your people cry out to you many times, Lord, often in tears, often with just our hearts. Sometimes the Spirit makes intercession, Lord, when we can't seem to find the words. But you know our needs before we ask. And so, Lord, today in this room are many people facing many different situations, Lord. And yet none, none of their trials, none of their burdens, none of their sins are too much or too big for you to handle. And so today, Lord, we pray that uh, we've come in here in this place, but, Lord, we won't leave the same that we would encounter God and that we would see the salvation provided in Christ and the hope that he gives, Lord, and that we would lay aside our burdens, give up our struggle with sin, and trust the only Savior, the only one that can redeem us, Lord, and that is Jesus Christ today. So have your way in this service, Lord. We promise to praise you and honor you for everything that happens here. In Jesus' name we ask and believe. Amen. Today, if you would, turn with me to 1 Peter. Once again, as I told you, we are going to move along through the rest of this book in bigger sections now as we have tackled a lot of the more intricate teachings uh, that, that Peter has given us. And today's message is more of a uh, three-part, if you will, mini ser- three mini-sermons. So I promise I won't keep you that long, but the section of Scripture, Peter kind of goes in differing directions. And so we're going to look together today at a big chunk of scripture from 1 Peter 3 verses 8 through 22 in a message uh, titled Standing Firm in Trying Times. Standing Firm in Trying Times from 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to begin at verse 8 and read down through verse 22 today. I'll let you stay seated this morning, uh, but we will read together. The word of God says this, finally all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, but his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect." having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. 
Father, again, we thank you for this hour to gather together. We pray your blessing upon this word that your spirit would minister to us uh, and that he would accomplish whatever it is that you would see fit today. And we'll give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to ask you a question. We read a big portion of scripture, and as I said, we'll try to divide this up into sections. But I want to ask you a question as we begin. What would you do in life if you knew you couldn't fail? If you knew with 100% certainty that you could not fail, what would you attempt in life? Because we've had enough conversations in this church, and I've had enough conversations over my time in ministry, to know that fear is a big obstacle in most people's lives. And fear holds us back from doing many things, including serving the Lord in certain areas. But what would we do if we knew that we could not fail? Winston Churchill said success is walking from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm. Think about that for a moment. Failures will come, but Churchill says if we can move from failure to failure and still keep our enthusiasm, that we would respond much differently when failures do come into our life. And I believe that we struggle to live the Christian life because we are afraid of falling short in many areas. We know our sins, we know our shortcomings, and we are hesitant to go all in, if you will, for the Lord because we're certain that we won't be able to succeed, that we'll let someone down or we'll let the Lord down. So the only way to assure that that doesn't happen is to not do anything at all. And that certainly is the ultimate failure by not trusting the Lord and walking in faith. Warren Wiersbe said that faith and fear both demand you believe in something you cannot see or control. And he asked, which one will you obey? The psalmist writes in Psalm 56, 4, In God, in whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? So when we think about fear this morning, and I want us to focus on our fears, and I want us to think specifically about suffering, Trials. Peter has had a lot to say about that. He's mentioned that topic over and over, and we've touched on it several times already in the past few weeks. But when we think about suffering, we immediately equate it with the uncomfortable situation that we are going to face when we are going through suffering. And as Americans, we value comfort above all things, right? If, if we're in here right now with this air conditioning going, and some of us were a little chilly, and so we said, man, we're cold. But it wouldn't take long if we turned the air conditioner off for all of us to be doing this. Say, well, they don't turn the air conditioner on in this place. It's miserable in here, right? And so we like our comfort. We want that temperature set perfectly, and nobody knows what that number is because it's different for everybody. But we all have different ideas of what comfort ought to look like. But certainly one thing we can all agree on is we don't like suffering, and we do everything we can to avoid it, and yet life is going to bring suffering continually into our lives Jesus promised we would suffer, and so it shouldn't catch us off guard. And so if suffering is coming, we can't avoid it. We ought to know how we should respond and handle it. Amen? And that's what the Word of God is going to tell us how to do. He's going to talk about the fact that we are going to suffer, but we are going to suffer if we live a righteous life. And so there's already a condition placed on that. You won't suffer for uh, godly reasons if you live an unrighteous life. And so if, if, you, if you say that I'm a believer, but you never really live that life externally, that people don't even know that you're a believer, number one, there's a big problem there uh, about your salvation in general. But number two, you'll avoid suffering, at least in this life. You won't be persecuted uh, for being a godly person if you live an ungodly life. But Peter says that's not true. That should never be true of the believer. We ought to live godly lives. He spent a lot of time also talking about holiness and so if we live holy, sanctified lives, if we live righteous lives, we are going to draw ire from the world, right? We are going to be in opposition. This book, this word is in opposition to many of the beliefs and positions of the world today. We sung a song about Jesus being the Redeemer. And I mentioned this in Sunday school class. That is a very controversial statement in religious circles because Jesus said, I am the way the truth and the life and no man comes to the father but by me that's a very exclusive statement that's saying that there's no other savior and so when we make that claim when jesus makes that claim we immediately alienate ourselves against every other religion in the world 
to say, no, your way isn't right and your way isn't right. There is one way. Either Christ is the Savior, he is the Son of God, or he's not. There's no other option. He can't just be one way of many because he didn't leave us with that choice. He said, I'm one way. I am the way. He didn't say I'm one among many. And so just that statement will be very controversial among many other things in the word of God if you stand and stand firm on those things. And so the first portion of, of the verse, the text that we read today, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I do want to at least draw your attention to verses 8 through 12. And in those verses, Peter mentions again the way that we ought to live our lives, our conduct, our conversation, and our character. In all of those things, as we relate with the world, as we relate with people, they ought to see a difference in us. We ought to have unity of mind. Look around this room. There are different age, ages of people, different demographics, and we're going to be different. We should celebrate diversity. That's a good thing. But that doesn't mean that we can't be unified in our mission and purpose, right? We may have different ideas of how to get somewhere, but hopefully we're all trying to get to the same place. We want to glorify Jesus in everything that we do in this church. And you may have a different idea of how we do that, but the mission remains the same, and that is to glorify Christ. So we have a unity of mind. We have sympathy. Boy, that's a quality that's lacking today. Everyone seems to be so selfish anymore that we don't stop to think about anybody else. But the Lord says that his people ought to be sympathetic towards one another. We ought to show brotherly love towards one another and have a tender heart and be humble, not be proud and puffed up, not to look down on other people. Those are all qualities that we should see within the church. Not to repay evil for evil or not to curse those but to bless those. All those actions ought to be characteristics that we strive to live out in a world that is watching us. So what does that have to do with suffering? Well, when you live that type of life, it is going to draw attention to yourself. Even if you don't want that attention, even if you're not trying to get attention for you, you're trying to reflect the image of Christ, and people are going to see that, and sometimes it's going to affect you positively, and other times it will affect you negatively. And Peter is going to talk about the fact that as we live a life as a sojourner and pilgrim, which is what he called us in this world, this isn't our home, as we live a life that is different from the world, it's going to draw persecution towards us at times. We're fortunate enough in this country that we don't really yet know what true persecution is. There will, I believe, come a time when we will face that uh, to an extreme degree, but not yet. But our brothers and sisters in third world countries certainly understand it very well. And so we ought to be mindful of their sufferings, uh, and we ought to understand that those things can and will be a reality at some point to some degree in our own lives. So let's take a ne the next ch chunk of Scripture this morning, and that will be verses 13 through 17. And in these verses, Peter is going to talk about our suffering and the experience of that. So we're going we're gonna to break this last part into two sections our suffering and our experience, and then Christ's suffering and his example. So that's kind of how Peter looks at it, and that's what I'm going to try to show us this morning. So verse 13, he says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Well, there are plenty of people out there that would harm us, right? Turn on the news, and you see lots of folks that like to do harm to people. Peter was writing during the reign of an emperor named Nero, probably the most fierce uh, sinful, diabolical man that the Roman Empire ever knew. And so in light of that, for Peter to say, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good almost sounds insane because there was somebody in, on the throne that literally took delight in seeing Christians suffer. He would light his gardens by putting Christians up on torches and burning them alive as he strolled through the gardens at night. He would dress them in animal skins and throw them out into the lions to let them be devoured. He would flay their skin off their body while they were still alive. Those are some of the things that Nero... So Peter is saying, who is there to harm you? Are you kidding me? Peter, did you forget who the, who the Caesar is, who emperor is right now? It's Nero. Nero would be the one that would have the apostle Paul beheaded. Nero is the one that would have Peter killed along with many other Christians. So what is Peter saying to us? How can he make a statement like this? Because Peter is looking beyond this life. Peter understands that there is more to us than just this life. 
and we become so focused on now that we forget that there is an eternity that awaits us. And whether we live to be 10 years old or 100 years old, this is just a drop in the bucket compared to what we will face for all of eternity. Are we preparing for that? Are we ready for that? Have we laid up treasure in heaven? Or is all of our hope and all of our treasure in this life where when we die, it's over here, and then we will have to face the judgment unprepared? What have we done to be ready for that. Peter says that there's nothing in this life that can harm you if you are a follower of Christ. And then he goes on in verse 14, and he's going to explain to the readers and to us how we can handle suffering and persecution when it comes. And he kind of breaks this verse down into three points. Let me, let me show you these. Verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake. So there's a right reason there. He doesn't just say suffer in generalities. He says, this suffering that I'm talking about is a suffering that comes because you're living a righteous life. So a lot of times, you know, we face sufferings in life that have nothing to do with our Christian walk, per se. We might come down with a terminal illness, for example, that kind of suffering. Or there might be a natural disaster that leads to suffering. And those things were out of our control. We didn't ask for those things. We didn't do anything to motivate that to happen. It just was kind of our lot, if you will, in life. But... The suffering that will come from righteousness is by making a conscious decision to follow Jesus. And the result will be this persecution. So he says you're suffering for the right reason. You chose to live a godly life. You chose to proclaim the truth. Suffering will come, but Christ will honor that. Look what he says next in that same verse. If you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. The King James says, happy are you. I don't know about you. But when I get suffering in my life, happy is probably not my default response, right? Again, this is a conscious decision to walk in the spirit, to trust Christ by faith, even when everything around us and in us is screaming, I don't like this. This is uncomfortable. I want to change this situation right now. God, get me out of this mess. And he says, if you're suffering for righteousness sake, be happy. Doesn't Jesus say something like that similar in the Beatitudes? Blessed are you when they persecute you and revile you and say all kinds of evil things in my name's sake. Doesn't he say that there? So he goes on in verse 14. He says, there's a right reason because you're suffering for righteousness. There's a right reaction. You'll be blessed. And then the right resolve that we should have. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Again, Peter's saying all kinds of things that in our human experience, we say, I, I, I don't know about this. I don't get happy when I suffer. And there are times when I'm fearful, if I'm, I'm honest about things, Peter. And I certainly am troubled. I'm troubled about a lot of things. And so, again, we look at this through the lens of our experience and the reality that we know in our flesh. And Peter is trying to take us beyond this life into the next. He's trying to take us beyond our flesh into the spirit. He's trying to take us beyond what we know to what Christ modeled for us. And that is hard because we're trying to live outside of our existence, if you will. Our natural existence. These things are not natural to us. Amen? None of us, let's just be honest, that's why sometimes the Christian life is so difficult for us is because we don't live in the spirit, we don't walk in the spirit, we don't walk by faith. So much of what we do is built around our feelings and our emotions and our experiences that when we read stuff like this, it sounds so counter to what we know and it should. It should exactly sound absolutely opposite of what we know and experience in this life because it is. It's a other world life. It's Christ living this out through us. It's not something that we just can do. It's impossible for us. Just like we couldn't save ourselves. We can't live the Christian lives in our own strength. So when we read stuff like this, it drives us deeper into our relationship with Jesus because we can't do this without him. Amen? So suffering will come. For the right reason, we need to have a right reaction and a right resolve to it. And remember this, too. Who wrote this epistle? 
Don't be afraid. It's got his name on it. Peter wrote the epistle, right? Was Peter always bold? Do you remember Peter when Jesus was being betrayed and he followed him in the courtyard and this little servant girl came up and said, hey, he's one of the followers. No, I'm not. And, and he denies Jesus. Does that sound like a bold, strong follower of Christ? Wasn't this the same Peter that was hiding with the others up in the upper room with the doors locked, scared for his life? You see, Christ made a change. What made the difference? He saw the resurrected Savior. And when he saw the resurrected Savior, something changed in Peter's life. When you see a man who was dead on a cross and put in a tomb and three days later is alive and you're talking with him and eating with him, that's going to change you. It's going to change you. And while we have not seen Christ in the flesh face to face, yet we will one day. But Jesus said, blessed are those that believe without seeing. You see, that's what he told Thomas. And so we walk by faith. And just as much as Peter saw Christ alive in the flesh, just because we haven't seen Jesus alive with our physical eyes in the flesh doesn't change the fact that, church, he is alive. Amen. He is alive today. But we rely on our experience and we say, well, I haven't seen him with my eyes and I haven't touched him with my hands, so I'm just like Thomas. I'm going to doubt. And we do wrestle with doubts. But we have to move beyond the seeing of the eye and the touching of the hand to walking by faith because it's proclaimed in God's unfallible, unerrant word. He's made a promise, and if God is the one that spoke this word, it cannot fail. And so just because we haven't seen him, we have the next best thing, if you will, in the fact that God has communicated to us that truth. The Spirit of God lives inside of us, and we can relate to the experience of that, hopefully, when the new birth came upon us and things changed for us. So we can also say that we have seen the risen Christ and we are no longer the same because of that. And then it comes to verse 15. This is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. I'm sure that you have heard me teach on this and talk about it quite a bit because I love apologetics that doesn't mean you're apologizing for something. It means you're making a defense of something, namely the Christian faith. It's one of the areas of study that, uh, that I've put a lot of focus on in my ministry. And so this verse is often used as a foundational point for apologetics, and rightly so. It is a verse that describes that. But today we're going to take this verse as it really should be taken in context, and that is in the idea of suffering. You might have never read this verse and thought, Oh, this is about suffering, because usually you see this verse standing alone without the other verses around it. And so you wouldn't necessarily read it and say, oh, this is about suffering. But it is. Let me show you. Peter has just talked about how we are to suffer in our response in verse 14. And then he says, but in your hearts, honor, or I, I like sanctify is a better way of translating that. Sanctify Christ as Lord as kurios is the Greek word there. He is the one that we follow. So to suffer well means that we have set aside the Lord Jesus Christ as our master. We are going to follow him. We are going to walk with him. We are going to trust him. That's where it begins, setting him apart as Lord in our lives. Then he goes on and says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks. That word defense is where we get the idea of an apology. It's apologia is the Greek word, to make a defense of the faith. So Peter is saying when we follow the Lord, when we live this holy life, when we stand for Christ, we will be persecuted. Don't deviate from the truth. Don't back down from the message. Be ready to defend what you believe. Because for many of these Christians, when they were brought before councils, when they were brought before Nero, when they were brought before tribunals, do you know how they could have saved their life? We've talked about this many times. Deny Christ. Just deny him. Or better yet, you can have Christ. But Caesar is Lord. Worship him first. Remember I told you, Rome didn't care how many gods you had. You could worship any and every god you wanted to in Rome, so long as Caesar was first. And for the Christians to say there is no other Lord but Christ was treason. They were going against the worship of the emperor. And they could have saved their lives by simply saying Caesar is Lord. 
not Christ. That easy. And yet they were burned at the stake. They were crucified. All sorts of terrible things simply because they would not compromise. They were ready to give a defense for the hope that was in them at no expense, including their life. And he says in the conclusion of that verse, verse 15, do so with gentleness and respect or meekness and fear. Again, even in the face of death, our character and our response matters. He says to do so with gentleness and respect. Proverbs 15.1 says that a soft answer turns away wrath. In every circumstance, church, we need to be mindful of how we react and how we respond, especially when a world is watching us in the face of suffering. And now he kind of shifts gears again to another subject in verses 16 and 17. And he's going to talk about the conscience. He says we should have a good conscience so that when we're slandered, those who revile our good behavior, our righteous behavior in Christ, may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good that it be God's will than for doing evil. So let's talk about the conscience for just a moment. How does that work in our suffering? The word conscience is a Latin word. It means to know with. So your conscience kind of bears witness, if you will, of the real person that you are, right? Because here's the thing that we talk about a lot here at K. Russo as well. And, and the world has this idea too. When we come into the church, when they come into the church, they're seated around a bunch of people that got it all figured out. They got their lives in order. They're perfect. Because isn't that what people always say? I can't come to church. The walls would fall in if I walked in that place. I can't be around those kind of people. You know, they don't know what kind of life I live. Well, if we're honest, our lives aren't always that great either, are they? But we come in here and we pretend. We pretend. We put on the mask and we act as though we're somebody that we're not. And what happens is when we leave here, we take the mask back off and we go right back to being who we really are. But if we would be honest about our sins and honest about our struggles and truly seek Christ to change us, we wouldn't need to wear a mask anymore. We could be who we are and we could admit our sins and our struggles to one another, as the Bible says we ought to, and confess those to each other and to him and allow him to do the work in our lives. But we spend so much time trying to hide who we are and cover up what we've done that we never get victory over those sins because we're too busy burying them and trying to avoid them rather than dealing with them. Because God forbid if we, somebody found out who we really are. They might think less of us when all the while they're trying to hide their sins too. And we're all playing this game together. But the conscience is one thing that kind of bears witness with who we really are. The conscience kind of is the scale, if you will, on the inside. Now the conscience is not always a safe guide because we're fallen sinful creatures. And because of our sin, the conscience doesn't always operate as it was originally intended to do so. And so don't rely on your conscience as being a foolproof, safe guide in every situation. That's what the word is for. That's what the spirit is for. But the conscience does play a role in our life. And it will either approve our behavior or it will condemn our behavior, accuse us. So let me give you a few verses here. Romans 2, verses 14 and 15. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes there. He says, for when the Gentiles, who are the Gentiles? Anyone that's not a Jew. So all of us, I would assume, in this room would be Gentiles. For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, remember, God gave the law to Israel on, on Mount Sinai through Moses, so we weren't direct recipients of the law, but that doesn't excuse us from obeying the law. Why? The Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written where? On their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Paul says that just because you're not a Jew doesn't get you off the hook when it comes to God's law. It's a universal law that applies to all and it will condemn us if we are under it or we can be set free from the law through grace by faith in Christ. And so he says your conscience is going to either accuse or excuse you. One, one preacher said that your conscience is like a window. And it lets God's light in. But if we disobey, that window gets dirtier and dirtier and less and less light can come in. Let me give you two other verses that talk about the conscience. First is Titus 1, verse 15. Titus 1, 15 says this. 
To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. That word means stained or contaminated. It's not trustworthy. Their actions uh, and their minds and their consciences are defiled. The other verse is 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 2. He says this here. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Listen to what he says. Through the insincerity of liars, these liars have consciences that are seared. That means that they've been cauterized. If you're in the medical field, you'll understand what that means. To stop the bleeding, they'll cauterize something. It severs the nerves. That area becomes insensitive. He's saying that these false teachers have believed a lie and taught a lie for so long that they've become insensitive, unfeeling towards the word of God. Their conscience is no longer a safe God. We might call some folks in our culture today, in our world today, sociopaths who have a conscience that is so seared that nothing bothers them anymore. They can go out and murder and do all kinds of things and then go home and sit down with their family and have a conversation at the dinner table and not even think about what they just did. Their conscience has been seared. But Peter's talking about suffering. So what on earth can a good conscience have to do with suffering? Well, let me give you just a couple of quick things. Number one, it gives us courage that we are right with God. When our conscience bears witness to the fact that we are living a righteous life, it gives us courage to follow through in obedience to God. When Martin Luther stood at the Diet of Worms and gave his defense, if you will, for nailing his 95 Thesis to the castle of the Wittenberg Castle, he, he said these words, supposedly, this has never really been 100% confirmed, but it's been taught enough where I, I feel confident he probably did say something like this. He stood before this council that was ready to condemn him, and he said, here I stand, I can do no other, God help me. He was willing to face whatever suffering would come because in his heart and in his mind, he had trusted the Lord, he had followed the Lord, he was obedient to God, and he was willing to take whatever came. The suffering was going to come, and Martin Luther had a clear conscience to be able to stand. Number two, it gives us a peace within. When you live right, when you don't have to pretend that you've got it all together, there's a peace When you are living a lie, you have to tell more and more lies to keep the story going, to put on this false facade that you're trying to live out. And there's no peace with that kind of life. To have a clear conscience is to have peace with man and peace with God. And finally, when you have a clear conscience, there's no need to worry about what anybody says about you. They're going to slander you. It's unavoidable. Jesus was slandered. Joseph in the Old Testament was slandered by Potiphar's wife and thrown in jail as a result of something he never did, right? You're going to face slander, but you don't have to worry about ultimately those stories being found out that you did something wrong because you didn't. Psalm 118 verse 6 says, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Again, that's difficult, We want to respond when we are slandered against. We want to defend ourselves. That's a natural human response. But if we take a step back and say, the Lord has promised that vengeance is his, he will repay, he will fight my battle. Ultimately, I don't need to get into a war of words with somebody. If my conscience is clear, let it go. Let the Lord fight my battle. And on the day of judgment, the truth will come out. Even if I'm not vindicated in this life. I will certainly be vindicated in the next. And that's good enough for me. And finally, in Romans 9.1, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. This morning, church, like I said, our conscience is not always a foolproof guide. But if you're living a righteous life, it will bear witness to the word of God, to the truth of that. And it will help you in your walk with Christ. And if you're not living for Christ, that guilt and that shame that you often feel is a result of a conscience that is still tender enough to feel. And so rejoice in that. Be afraid if you can go out and sin and not feel conviction and not have your conscience moved any longer. That's a dangerous place to be. Conviction is uncomfortable, but it is a good thing 
when it draws us back to Christ. And so those are some of the experiences that Peter gives us. And we'll close with verses 18 through 22 and look at Christ's example in these verses. Just really quickly, we'll take a look at what he says about Christ's example to us. Verse 18, he says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ suffered once. That has eternal significance in that statement. That means that what he did on the cross was enough for all people of all times forever. And that is why sometimes we struggle so much is we say, well, I got saved and all my sins are forgiven, but now after I've gotten saved, I still sin. Now what? Christ died once. Christ died once. Either he paid for them all or we're still dead in our sins. And I don't think that the second one is the right answer according to the word of God. When you trusted Christ with your sins, he forgave all of them. All of them. Not just the ones before you got saved, but the ones you'll commit after you got saved. Because there's no other sacrifice coming. He's not coming back the second time as Savior. He's coming back as Judge. He's coming back as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We read a couple of weeks ago in 1 Peter 2, verse 24. Peter wrote there, He himself, Jesus, bore our sins. So all of the debt that we owed that we could never pay, Jesus bore those sins in his body. He was sinless and took our sins on himself, on the tree or literally on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Again, we say, well, wait a minute. If, if we died to sin and lived to righteousness, then why do I sin and why do I struggle to be righteous? Because I'm, I've tried to drive this point home to you. It's speaking about our position in Christ. Don't confuse justification, what Christ has accomplished once for all, when you got saved with the sanctification that is the experience that we all go through after we're saved becoming like Jesus in our sanctification as we walk through this life as believers we will still sin we will still fall short we won't always live righteously but in the eyes of God by faith in Christ he no longer sees us he sees his son in our place and when we look at Jesus sin has been wiped out in our lives all sin, past, present, and future, is gone. Do you see? How can God look at someone like us and say that person is sinless? Because he doesn't see us. He sees Christ in our place. How can he look at someone like us who falls short so often and say, boy, that person lives a righteous, obedient life in accordance to the law, knowing that we don't because Jesus' righteousness has been credited to us. It's not us. It's him. It's all about him. It's always been about him. That's why we shouldn't make such a big deal about us, but we ought to make a really big deal about him because this isn't about us. We're not here today to worship other people. You're not here today to worship your pastor. You're here today to worship Christ. He's the one that's worthy of worship today. And he says it's to bring us to God. That literally means to gain an audience in a courtroom. Christ has won the victory for us, and so we can now approach the throne of grace boldly the bible tells us and then he goes down into verse 19 and he says something that has often made it difficult for people to understand these verses these are some of the most difficult verses in the bible and so you will get lots of different interpretations so as i always tell you just because i or some other guy stands in a pulpit and explains the word of God to you. I don't expect you to say well pastor told me this. And that's how it is. I want you to go home and read the word of God for yourself. And I want you to study it. And I want you to see if what I have told you lines up with scripture. You may come up with a different interpretation. Again I would, I would, I would urge you to not just say well my interpretation is this so I'm right. Pastor was wrong. I must be right. You know because at the end of the day there's only one right interpretation. We might come up with different ideas. There might be a whole lot of different applications, but there's only one right interpretation. We're not all right on this thing. Somebody's right and everybody else is wrong. 
So we try our best to use scripture to interpret scripture and to come up with the right answer to what Peter is trying to tell us here. And so this is what I believe that the word of God teaches us. Because if we come to a, different to a difficult topic, we don't use the most difficult scripture in all the Bible to try to make sense of it, right? We want to try to find verses that are plain and clear to understand and use those verses to interpret the more difficult ones. And so this one, I believe, can be further explained by looking at verses that make a little more sense. He says in verse 19, in, so let's be, let me back up to the end of verse 18, and that will make more sense. He says, he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So Christ had a human body, and he rose three days later bodily by the power of the spirit. Paul says in Romans, the same spirit who rose Jesus from the dead lives in us. It was the Holy Spirit that brought Christ's body back to life. Okay? Now he goes on in verse 19. In which he went, who went? Jesus, and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. I get this question a lot when we do ask the pastor. What happened to Jesus in between his death and his resurrection? If you were with us on Wednesday, we talked about the Mormons say that he went to Central America, and in Central America he spent three days there talking to the, what would become the Mormon church. That is obviously not my position. I believe what the Bible teaches is that during this time, the Bible says in verse 19 that he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. What is the word proclaimed there in the Greek? Amen. Thank you, Robin. I was hoping somebody would know that. K. Russo. A lot of people say, why did we name the church K. Russo? What does that mean? Well, we named it that, number one, because I believe that it gives us an opportunity to talk about what God has done through Christ. It gives us an opportunity to explain that Christ proclaimed victory. It's not that he went into the depths of the earth, literally Hades, to the place of the dead and preached the gospel. There wasn't a saving message in this. It was a victorious message that Christ had defeated death, hell, and the grave. And he went and proclaimed that message to the spirits. The word there is pneuma. It never has anything to do with physical human beings. It always talks about uh, the spiritual realm. So I believe that it's saying there that Jesus in between his death and resurrection descended into the dwelling place, into Hades, into the place of the dead, uh, where the condemned spirits during the time of Noah, the antediluvian before the flood age, these spirits that have, had, had transgressed against God were kept, and he proclaimed the message of victory to them, that he had defeated the kingdom of darkness. And we see that uh, in Jude chapter 1, verse 6. It says, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal change under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Verse 20 of our text, same idea. Because they, who, the spirits in prison, did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So Jesus is proclaiming victory in the spiritual realm to these fallen angels who had not followed the pattern for which they had been created. So that's somewhat clear, I hope, when you see that. But then we come to the difficult verse. We come to the difficult verse, which is verse 21. And it says there, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. And so as Baptists, do we just... Do we throw out our entire doctrine as Orthodox Christians who believe that we're saved by grace through faith? Do we, do we stop and confess that the Church of Christ has been right for all these years and you've got to get water baptized to be saved? What's the deal here? What is this text trying to teach us? What is it trying to say to us? Well, again, I think it's important that we take all of these verses in context and jump back to verse 20 where he says that, in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Question, when the floods came and all of the world besides those eight people were destroyed, what kept Noah and his family safe during the flood? The ark. The ark. What is an ark? What is the ark a picture of? 
We talk about the types and the shadows in the Old Testament. The ark is a picture of Jesus. It's a picture of Jesus. Notice in verse 21, it says baptism, which corresponds. That word there is antitupos. It means a type. Just like Jesus is a type of the ark, he's saying baptism is a type of something. It's, it's a shadow. It's a figure of something. The, the question is we've got to figure out what is it a figure of. So Christ is a picture, a picture of the ark. It was the ark that kept the people of Noah's time, Noah's family, safe. When they were in the ark, they were safe. Now notice in our text in verse 21, he says, Baptism is a type of this, and it saves you. And then he gets explicit about what he's trying to say. And this is where I think people read that first part of the verse and they say, See, you got to get baptized if you really want to be saved. And they don't read the rest of the scripture. They don't read the rest of the text. Uh, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but for what purpose? As an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what do we know for certain? What can we say, not just based on this difficult text, but throughout the scriptures? The Bible does not teach that baptism saves anyone. The Bible does teach that only the blood of Christ can wash away sin, not the water. No matter how many times I dunk you in this, if you've never trusted Christ, I can't wash away your sins in the water. That's why Peter says baptism corresponds to this and now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body. Remember, speaking to Jews, the baptism would have been not a Christian baptism but a ceremonial cleansing of the garments and of the person. When they ceremonially washed themselves, there was a cleansing that takes place. That's not what water baptism in the Christian faith does. The cleansing is done by the blood of Christ. The cleansing is done by grace through faith when you trust him. That is where the spiritual birth takes place. 1 John 1.7 says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Over and over the Bible declares that spiritual cleansing can only take place by a sacrifice, a substitute, which is Jesus, and the shedding of his blood. We know that without question. So then what is Peter trying to tell us about baptism? Well, it's a type, it's a picture. The ark was where the salvation was found, and it rode safely upon the flood waters. The vessel that kept them safe was carried along in the water. And he says to these Christians that baptism now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Remember, we just spent a lot of time talking about the benefits of the conscience when it comes to suffering. These Christians had made a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they were facing suffering from all the angles. Rome was persecuting. The Jewish brothers and sisters were persecuting. Their families were persecuting. And now Peter is asking them to make a public display of what has happened on the inside by being baptized outwardly. You talk about putting the final nail in the coffin for their suffering. Listen, they might profess faith, but they could sneak around and keep that undercover faith like some of you do sometimes. You don't want to be outward and open with your faith. You want to keep it concealed. But when you stand before the church, when they stood before their Jewish brethren and the Roman government and said, I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm willing to admit that and I'm willing to follow through because my conscience is clear. I'm going to follow Christ. I'm going to give a defense for the hope that is in me. I've set apart, set apart Christ as Lord in my life. And if it costs me my life, I'm going to outwardly proclaim through baptism that I am a follower of Jesus. When you get saved, the first thing that you should do in obedience to Christ is be baptized. Some of you in this room are truly believers, but you've still never yet followed him in baptism. And can I say this? You're living in disobedience still because you don't bypass that. I, I, I'm fearful sometimes that one of the problems in Baptist churches is while we, have, we haven't elevated, as some churches have, baptism to a position it's not, i.e. salvation through water, we have diminished its value to say, well, it's just optional. It's, the salvation's done. The angels in heaven have rejoiced. We're happy for you. If you want to get dunked, great. If you don't, take your time. And then we say, well, the thief on the cross never got dunked. So, you know, we don't really have to do it either. He was the exception, not the norm. 
first of all. If you're a believer, you ought to take baptism seriously. You are showing the world that you have died with Christ and you're raised, you hear me say it, buried with him to rise to walk in newness of life from Romans 6. You are publicly proclaiming what Christ has done in your life. Baptism is no small thing. We don't teach it and imparts grace. We don't teach it and imparts spiritual life. But it certainly is the first step of obedience that you should not ignore if you are a follower of Christ. And Peter says, if you follow through with this, brethren, I know you're suffering. You'll suffer even more. But you will have a good conscience. And because Christ is resurrected and alive, you have a promise that no matter if they take your life, you know that you'll live. That's what he's saying in that verse. Not that water saves you. And he closes with this. I'm going to ask Caleb and Tiffany to come. He says, Christ, this Christ that's rose from the dead, has gone into heaven. He's at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers, and they have been subjected to him. Church, I hope, if nothing else, you take away from this message today this, that when suffering comes, you're willing to stand up for what is right. You're willing to stand up and live for Jesus. If that means today that you need to come forward and say, I'm a believer, but I've never been baptized, and I'm going to do that as soon as possible, so be it. If you've never followed Christ, today is the day of salvation. Follow him, trust him, look to him in faith. But whatever your decision is, know that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is in full authority and full command of your life and mine. And nobody can harm a hair on your head until he says it's time. So walk in boldness, walk in confidence, and live for him today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the truth that even in suffering, Lord, when our fears and, and our doubts are on full alert, if we'll stop and listen to the still small voice, we can trust you, that you are in control of our lives, and that it is a blessing to suffer for righteousness' sake. Lord, better to be loved by you and hated by the world than to be loved by the world and hated by you. Lord, help us today to stand strong, to live for you, to follow you in obedience, whether that's in baptism or coming and confessing our sins before you, surrendering to service in this church, whatever the need, that today would be the day where we make decisions for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we stand, as we sing, would you come?